This morning's reading is Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you amongst the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with a knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Yet I have written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have <coughs> fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, 
I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. From Macedonia and Achaia, we are pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had, have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favourably received by all the Lord's people there, so that I may come to you with joy, by God's will, and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Roger. Morning all. Why don't we uh, keep Romans chapter 15 open, and I'll pray for us before we look at it together. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Father, we thank you that we have good news to share. Thank you that Jesus is good news. And we thank you that the good news about who Jesus is and what he did when he came to this world to die and rise again, is powerful. It is powerful to save people. It is powerful to change lives forever. And so I pray this morning, Lord, as we, as we look at this wonderful theme of getting the gospel out, would you stir our own hearts and would you encourage us all to play our small part in your great work of bringing the gospel to the nations. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. I thought I'd begin by um, telling you about two very different individuals and their different approaches to evangelism, to getting the gospel out. First person I want to tell you about is going to remain nameless, um, but he's, he's a bit of a maverick character. I think extrovert only goes to begin to describe his character. He's in his 80s now, and there's lots of stories that I could tell you about this man. But I want to tell you about his latest episode in hospital. He's just had a hip replacement, full hip replacement. And to cut a long story short, he refused a general anaesthetic, and he persuaded the surgeon to give him an epidural or a spinal block instead. And so he was fully conscious for his whole hip replacement. And he was rang up after, and he was asked how the hip replacement went, a bit of a pastoral call, how was it? And he said, oh, it was magnificent. Which isn't what you expect to hear on the back of a call like that. He said, it was magnificent. He said, there was four people in there, a surgeon, a couple of nurses, and a trainee doctor. And he said, I had three hours to tell them about Jesus. And they couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> he said they couldn't leave. It's magnificent. And I tell that story, and some of us are giggling, others are thinking, nutter. <laughs> but most of us are thinking, I can under it's great. 
But is that the best methodology or approach to getting the gospel out? You see, we'll all have our different approaches, but what we cannot doubt about that guy, he was totally committed in his own unique way, totally committed to getting the gospel out, helping people understand who Jesus is. He's right down this end of the spectrum. Down at the other end here is my friend Gaz who led me to faith in Jesus. Gaz could not be more different. Introverted by nature, hates confrontation. And as I was thinking recently about Gaz's impact on my life in becoming a Christian, as I look back, here's the thing. I don't think he ever told me to my face about Jesus. But what he did is he prayed for me persistently for two years. He invited me to events and to church where I'd hear about Jesus. He wrote me letters. He sent me books. I've even got some double-sided tapes, cassette tapes, before CDs came in, of gospel talks. You see, he was totally different. Other end of the spectrum, but in his own unique, quiet, and persistent way, he was just as committed, yeah, to getting the gospel out. And you see, here's the point this morning. We'll all be on this spectrum somewhere. We all will. God has made us wonderfully unique and different with our personality profiles and our own little quirks. But wherever we fit, however God has set us up, here's the thing. If you're a Christian this morning, you all have a responsibility. We have a small and wonderfully privileged part to play in God's work of getting the gospel out that people all around this community and all around this nation and all around this world would get to hear who Jesus is. And you see, if our gospel ambitions are small, if we've got a pretty limited view of what the gospel can do, then I think Romans chapter 15 will persuade us to give up our small ambitions and have bigger expectations of what the gospel can accomplish, the powerful gospel, if only his people would stand up to be counted and in their own personal way make the wonderful gospel known to the people of this world. You see, that's exactly what this letter to the church in Rome was intended to do. We're at our penultimate talk now as we've worked our way through Romans chapter 15 this week. Next week is our last session, chapter 16. And you see, if we get all the way to the end of this letter and we've come away with a a better doctrine, a clear understanding of God, of the nature of sin, of of the justice of God, of, of Jesus' death on the cross and what it achieved, of the work of the Spirit in our hearts, all these things that Paul has laid out before us in this wonderful letter, if we come away with a clear understanding, yet without a renewed appetite and hunger for mission to get the gospel out, then I don't think we've accomplished what Paul set out to accomplish in the writing of this letter. Because Paul's heart for the church in Rome is that they would be brought together, that they would be united, Jew and Gentile together, in that one wonderful cause of getting the gospel out. And as we work our way through Romans chapter 15 this morning, I think there's three specific elements in view that are crucial for getting the gospel out. And I want to suggest to us that each of us has a part to play in each. Here's the first one, gospel unity, 
verse 7 to verse 13. I don't know whether you remember where we left off last week when Mark picked up in Romans chapter 14, but we left with this, this call to unity. You see, there were tensions in the church in Rome. There were disagreements of what they could eat and what they couldn't eat. And there was a bit of a dispute here. And you see, here's the point. There there might be a right and wrong. But Paul says to the strong in 15 verse 1, i.e. those that had a, a better understanding of how the gospel played out into all these different areas of life, he says to the strong, you know what, you might be right on this particular point. On this particular issue, you might be right. But here's the deal, don't push it. Don't push it to the point of division. Don't divide on these little secondary issues because it isn't a central gospel issue. Paul says we should be about building people each other up. Not knocking each other down. Have a look at verse 1 and 2. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. Paul said it is our work to build people up, not knock each other down on the basis of these small differences. You see, this wonderful theme of love has flown from Romans chapter 12. And part of loving one another is bearing with each other in these small differences. And Paul picks up that point again in Romans 15, chapter 7. Accept one another, then just as Christ accepted you. Jesus accepted us with all our failings, all our weaknesses, all our differences. And he says, just as Jesus accepted you, now you also ought to accept one another in order to bring praise to God. I wonder whether we're a people in the business of building up rather than knocking down. Our little lad Caleb, you heard him at the beginning there, he's 11 months old. He's at that stage in life now where he just loves destroying things. So I'll build a little wooden tower at one side of the room and you'll see his eyes light up. It's incredible. And he's crawling now. So he charges across the room and you see the glint in his eye as he knocks it to the ground. And you build it up and he knocks it to the ground. And you see, when we're dealing with a pile of wooden bricks and an 11-year-old, I personally just find that quite funny. He just knocks it down. He loves knocking it down. But you see, when it comes to the church... How sad that sometimes our actions and our words and the way that we behave, the way that we treat other people, does more to knock people down rather than to build them up. I wonder whether we're a people in the business of building each other up. Because you see, the point here as we come onto the the heart of Romans chapter 15 isn't just don't squabble because squabbling's not very nice. The point is don't squabble about these little things because it is breaking unity within the church and it is affecting our missional impact out there in the world. You see, if we are divided here in the church, if we are breaking up over little issues, our united front out there in the world will be weakened and it will be dampened. Gospel unity is absolutely crucial to getting the gospel out. And you see, the big division before us in Romans chapter 15 is the division of Jew and Gentile. And so I don't know whether we fully grasped how big this divide was, because today we live in a Gentile church, right? Jews, Gentiles, don't even get it. But in the church in Rome, the biggest divisive threat to that church was the division between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
And it was a division that was in danger of preventing the advancement of the gospel at this crucial stage in the early church. It is a division that totally undermined the work of Christ. Have a look at verse 8 of chapter 15 and verse 9. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus came to fulfill the promises to the Jews and so that those promises then might be expanded out to the Gentiles. That the gospel would go to all nations and that all nations would come in. And then in verse 9, as it is written, look, Paul gives us four Old Testament references, all saying the same thing. God's plan for his gospel was always for it to go to the Gentiles. It was always for it to reach the people of the UK and the people of Long Crendon. That was always God's design. Have a look at verse 12. And again, Isaiah says... The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. God's eternal plan was always to bring together Jew and Gentile, all people together, united for the glory of God and united in this one cause of mission to get the gospel out to the ends of this earth. And you see, I wonder how powerful our witness to this world would be if as a church we were totally united in gospel truth. I wonder what the non-believing world sees when it looks in at the church and it sees the media and the divisions and the disagreements and all that's going on. It sees a pretty divided church, I think. But I wonder about us as well as a local church. I wonder what the potential divisive threats are within here. Little disagreements, maybe, that are taken away from our witness to the world. Because the unity that we forge in here will affect the impact of our witness out there in the world. Gospel unity is absolutely essential. That's the first thing. And then we come to gospel proclamation. Look, verse 14 to 22. I came across this newspaper article recently it's up there on the screen you can see the headline it's from the daily mail remarkable headline don't preach church tells christians and it goes on to say i don't know whether you can read it that christians can do more harm than good speaking openly about their faith what a mad article that is (laughs) i mean firstly it's totally it just doesn't work does it Because here's the point, if you're not out there telling people about their faith, what is the faith that they're believing in? You're not pushing people away from something they haven't heard about. It just doesn't make sense. But maybe more importantly, it doesn't sit with what Paul commends here in Romans chapter 15. Because Paul is all about the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel must be spoken about. The gospel must be proclaimed. And as we come to verse 14 and 15 here, Paul moves from being intensely practical, which he has been in the last few chapters, to being intensely personal as he talks about his own role as an apostle and his own duties that he had 
as an apostle. It's the theme that he mentioned back in Romans 1 verse 1 as he laid out his credentials as an apostle and the authority that he had. And he picks that up with that again, look in verse 15. Look what he says to the church in Rome. Yet I've written to you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. That grace of God was the grace given to Paul to be an apostle. And Paul says, look, verse 14, you might actually be doing pretty well as a church. Look what he says in verse 14, full of goodness, filled with knowledge. As a church, you're competent to instruct one another. Yet despite the church of Rome being actually pretty good, he says, yet... I have written to you boldly on some points to remind you. There are certain things that I had to write to you boldly upon. Because there are certain areas of your, of your doctrine, of your thinking, of your life, of your practice that are not quite in line. And they need straightening out. And so, of course, no one stands up here today with the authority of an apostle. But we all sit under the authority of God's word. That's why we teach it every single week. And I wonder as we've worked our way through this great letter, this letter to the church in Rome, I wonder what those areas of our life are. The areas of our doctrine, the areas of our, of our thinking, of our practice, which maybe just need straightening out a little bit. I wonder where God in his kindness has just impressed upon your heart and said, that's maybe not quite right. Maybe God is asking you to straighten out that part of your life and your thinking and your practice. So Paul talks about his authority as an apostle, but then he goes on to talk about his duty. Have a look at verse 16, halfway down. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It might surprise you that this is the only time in all of Paul's writing, that he actually uses the word priest. It's such a loaded Old Testament word that you'd think is the sort of phrase Paul would grab at and expand in all his letters, but he doesn't. It's the only time he talks about this priestly work, this priestly service. And look what he says. He gave me the priestly duty. What is Paul talking about? Well, you see, a priest is someone that stands between God and the people. He's someone that mediates between a holy God and a sinful people. And a priest had two main roles or functions. Firstly, it was to represent God to the people. He would represent all that God was to the people. But his second function was to represent the people to God. And you see, because of these two functions, a priest had two different sets of clothing. You see the clothing there on the left with all the, the, the robes and the beauty and, and adorned with all the jewels. You see, whenever the priest was representing God before the people, he would wear all these ornate robes because he was representing a, a majestic, a beautiful, a glorious God to the people. But when the priest was representing the people before God, like on the Day of Atonement that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, when the priest brought sacrifices to God on behalf of the people, he would wear the white linen robes. Because on that occasion, he was representing plain, normal people like us before God. 
And so when Paul here talks about this priestly duty, he's got a priestly duty. Which function is he talking about? And you see, I'd like to say that it's that first function there. Because that second function of representing people before a holy God has been perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus. That's Romans chapter 3. It's what the book of Romans is all about. It's the gospel. That Jesus as the great high priest walked before God and he gave himself as a sacrifice for sin. Once for all, there is no more mediation that needs to happen. There is no more work that needs to be done to bring sinful people before a holy God. That work is completed, it is finished, but there is still a priestly duty that needs to happen. And it is the work of representing a holy God before the people of this world. And of course, we don't do that today by wearing big gowns and all our regalia, right? How do we do it? How does Paul say we represent God? By the proclamation of the gospel. As we proclaim the gospel of God, so we make the glorious God known. We represent all that God is to the people of this world. It is our job. Because if we want to get out of this and say, well, surely this is just the work of Paul the Apostle, right? This was his duty. Look what Peter says in his letter in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. He makes it clear that this is a function for us all. But you, he says, speaking to the church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of his darkness into his wonderful light. We are now a royal priesthood. If you believe in Jesus, you have perfect access to God. And as a royal priesthood, what are we to do? We are to declare. We are to proclaim. We are to make known the praises of him who called us out of darkness, out of sin, out of judgment, into his glorious light. The God who rescued us, it is now our job as a royal priesthood and our joy and our privilege to proclaim the praises of him. The gospel must be proclaimed. And it is Paul's urge here. He goes on, look in verse 19, second half, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Verse 20, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel of Christ where it was not known. This is Paul's desire again and again to preach and to proclaim the gospel so that it will be made known in this world. So you see, when we're confronted with an article like that, don't preach, church tells Christians, because it puts people off. We need to stand with the Apostle Paul, and boldly remind people that the gospel must be proclaimed. If people are going to trust in Jesus, the gospel must be proclaimed. Gospel unity is essential for the gospel going out, and gospel proclamation is essential. And then finally, gospel partnership. Verse 23 to 33. Look down with me at verse 23. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you in Rome, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you all passing through and that you will assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. Do you see Paul's itinerary? He's got his map out. Do you see where he's circled in red? Spain. 
Paul says I'm off to Spain because the gospel has not yet been preached there. But there are two stops that Paul is going to make en route. Do you see them? The first stop is in Jerusalem. He wants to visit Jerusalem to leave a gift with the people. Look at verse 26. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. Paul has visited some of these more well-off Gentile churches and he wants to bring an offering from them to the poor believers in Jerusalem because of their partnership in the gospel. And after visiting Jerusalem, before he gets to Spain, where does he want to go? He wants to go to Rome to meet with his brothers and sisters there in Rome as well. Why? Why does Paul want to go to Rome? Well, we learned back in chapter 1 that he wants to reap a harvest among the people there. As the gospel flourishes, so it would go out from the capital of the Roman Empire. But that's not in view here. Have a look down at verse 24. Why does he want to visit? I hope to see you while passing through and that you will, ins- you will assist me on my journey there. Paul needs the help of the church in Rome to get to Spain. Paul is utterly dependent upon partnerships with people in order that he might continue on his journey to get the gospel out. These partnerships are essential. And we know this, right, in our own ministry. Think of Pastor Julian in Romania. Loads of us will never go there, right? Some Alan Sam's out there today. Some people do get to go out there. We probably never will. But we can still partner with our friends in Romania through prayer and through financial giving to help the gospel flourish there. And that goes for all our international mission partners. But it's not just international mission, right? We want to see the gospel flourish, not just here, but in the surrounding communities all across our nation. Enabling work to grow across our nation and our world. That's the last strand of our vision, right? We exist as a church in part to enable the gospel to go out across our nation. What we don't want to do is put a pin in the map here in Long Crendon, draw a five-mile radius around it and say, this is what we're all about. It's all about what I can do and accomplish here in Long Crendon. Because we need to be partnering with other people for the sake of the gospel and other churches and other networks and other gospel works that are going on round about. You see, how do we do this? Well, I think financially, of course, isn't it? We give financially to enable the gospel, go out in these other places. Training. What about training leaders as a a church that is so fully resourced with skills and with finances? What about pouring our life into people and releasing them and saying, look, it's more than just this little patch here. It's communities around, it's villages around, it's towns around, it's cities around. How can we train and release people? How can we finance things? How can we join prayerfully with other works that are going on? So that we're not just focused on our little patch. Because it's about the gospel going out and gospel partnerships are essential. Look at verse 30. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Paul says, join me. I need your help. Gospel partnerships are essential. Gospel unity, 
essential gospel proclamation is essential and gospel partnerships are all essential for getting the gospel out. And do you know what? You remember where we started with our friend in hospital and my friend Gaz? We could be anywhere right on that spectrum. We're maybe not going to be like the pioneer Paul, charging to new territory. We're maybe going to be more like my friend Gaz, persistently praying for people and inviting them to things that they might hear the gospel. But whatever your makeup, we all have a part to play, a small part to play in this wonderful work of getting the gospel out. So why don't I leave you with this question on the screen. As you think about unity, as you think about proclamation, as you think about partnerships, how ambitious are you, how ambitious are we as a church in getting the gospel out? Take a moment to think before we sing our last song together.